words I speak and the words we hear be your words of life to us, our God. Amen. So on the church calendar, last Thursday was a pretty good day. Does anyone know what was last Thursday? Oh yes, Ascension kind of crept out there. That's why we had that really, well it kind of ended up being an extra reading. I'm not entirely sure how that happened. Um, that wasn't your fault, it was the way Laurie set it out. But I just asked her to chuck the, the Ascension reading in with the Acts reading. It was just supposed to be a super long Acts reading, not two readings from Acts. But that's why we had that. Using the timeline set out in Luke's, uh, set out by Luke in Acts, Last Thursday was the day we remember the Ascension. Actually, most churches who kind of do that kind of thing now remember it today because, well, most people nowadays don't like going to church on midweek, so they just kind of slide it into the Sunday. So it's now 43 days after Jesus rose from the dead. I have to admit that for most of my life, I've wondered why we have the Ascension. I've not really understood it or the need for it. Most of the Gospels don't have an Ascension story. It's only Luke, really, that talks about it. And even Luke is a little confused about when it happened. In his Gospel, he says it's at the resurrection. But by the time he got round to writing Acts, he said it was 40 days later, which is why we're doing it now. So, whether it happened, when it happened... It all seems to be all debatable. And so, why have it? And it seems to me that the ascension comes with it a few problems. I've said on lots of occasions that the gospel writers were trying to change things up. We normally try to understand Jesus by using our preconceived notions about God some of which come from what we call the Old Testament, and some come from our dominant cultural images. For example, when we call Jesus King or God King, immediately we bring into play a whole lot of assumptions about what kings are and how they operate. But what the Gospel writers were trying to do was to say, in Jesus' life and death and resurrection... That's the starting point for understanding God, not the other way around. You don't start off with your ideas about God and apply them to Jesus. You start off with Jesus, and in Jesus you understand who God is, the characteristics of God, the way that God operates. That's what today's reading, that very complicated, involved reading that we heard from John, is all about. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus, not the other way around. And central to this is the idea of the incarnation, that of God coming amongst amongst us, who can be found at work in creation, bringing healing and life and mercy. And that's pretty much where Matthew and Mark and John leave it. Sure, in Mark's Gospel there is a passage about the ascension, but that wasn't written by Mark. That was written by someone else and is plonked on the end of the bit that was written by Mark because either the end of Mark's gospel got chopped off or 
people just weren't very happy about how he finished his gospel and thought, well, it needs more, so we'll provide the more, here's the more. That bit talks about ascension. So the ascension kind of says that Jesus has gone back to heaven and implied in that is, well, the incarnation was a bit of a weak blip. And so the tempting Temptation then is to chuck the incarnation out the window, and that leaves us with a few problems. The first and most important is that we stop seeing Jesus as our way of understanding God. Jesus has gone back to God, so we're back to all our original understandings about who God was. We can kind of discount Jesus' earthly life. Sure, there's some good teaching there. The miracles are great for some people, pretty problematic for other people. And the dying and rising is important for getting us into heaven and such. But in terms of actually putting much emphasis on Jesus' life, well, we can just forget it. Because Jesus is back with God, everything's back as it should be, and we can revert back to all the old images of God, like ruler and judge of all creation, and Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of God all-powerful, and so we end up with a whole lot of images like our resurrection window of a nicely dressed, well-combed Jesus. But actually, where in the Gospels do you get an image like that? That's not how Jesus is presented in the Gospels. It's a nice image, but it's actually not the Jesus of the Gospels. And if the Jesus of the Gospels is our starting point for understanding God... That actually becomes a problem. And a lot of our prayers come out of that kind of image of Jesus, not the Jesus of the Gospels. And that leads to a couple of other problems. There was a great song, Bette Midler's song, Jesus, uh, God is Watching Us from a Distance. Very popular. And I think part of the reason why it was popular was because people actually think that. That God is watching us from a distance. Jesus went back to God. God is a long way away. They are watching us from a distance. It's a great song, but it's really, really, really bad theology. Really bad theology. This idea that God is watching us, judging us from a distance. There is no way you can get that from Jesus in the Gospels. But because we kind of let go of Jesus of the Gospels, we embrace that idea. All our old ideas come back to play. And then we get the idea that because Jesus has ascended to heaven, well, the incarnation is over. Jesus has left the house. And it's all up to us now to carry on the mission. And if we don't do anything, nothing will happen. So mission becomes something that we do rather than something that God does. And I have to say that it was a long time before it occurred to me that maybe that wasn't right. Like I'd got through theological college, I'd got through two years as a curate in a parish, I was doing youth ministry, and then it suddenly occurred to me that maybe mission wasn't my responsibility. That maybe, actually, mission was something that God does. And it turns out that's actually how Anglicans think about mission. The Missio Dei, the mission of God. Mission is God's responsibility. We join in. 
But because we keep thinking that Jesus has left the house, and so mission is all up to us, that puts a lot of pressure on us. And the result is that we often freeze, and well, we end up not doing a lot at all. Or we hope someone else will do it, particularly the person who's paid by us. So then mission becomes something that the paid people, the clergy do, while the rest of us sit back and think, phew, luckily we have a priest in the house who can do mission for us. And I know people think that because I got into serious trouble in one parish one day when I preached that actually mission was something for all of us to be involved in. And at the next vestry meeting I was seriously told off and told by senior members of that parish We pay you to do the mission. Don't you dare tell us that we're involved in the mission again. Thank you very much. Or we'll stop giving. My bad. I was just trying to read the Bible. I blame the ascension for all of this. It has confused us. It has left us with bad theology. It has left us frozen under the weight of our responsibility. And it leaves me with one question. Why, Luke? Why on earth did you have to include it? The others didn't. You could have left it out. Wouldn't have made a big difference, surely. Surely you could look ahead to see the problems up ahead. Why? Why did you have to tell that story? But he did. So clearly there's something else going on. So let's back up a bit. And let's do a little bit of theology and have a wee look at the Incarnation, which is a pretty central idea to us Christians, not one that I suspect we spend a lot of time thinking about, however. So how might we talk about the Incarnation? Well, I might describe it in this way. The Incarnation is when God, the Eternal Word, came among us as one of us in the person of Jesus, who was fully human and fully divine. Now, we say that all the time with the Nicene Creed, because that's actually what the Nicene Creed was about, trying to work out how the Incarnation works. So after about 450 years, the Christians, 350 years, 450 years, the Christians were all at each other, trying to work out how the Incarnation works. In this moment, the divinity of the fully divine Jesus mingles with our humanity. So we kind of think, oh, well, that's all very nice. Jesus is fully human, fully divine. He's over there. It's all nice and safe. Nice little boundaries around that. But actually the incarnation says, because God comes amongst us, fully human, fully divine... Jesus' divinity mingles with our humanity. Why does Jesus do that? Why does God the Eternal Word do that? To remind us that we are made in the image of divine love. And to show us what that divine love looks like. And to remind us, now we in the West have not been very good at keeping hold of this, but the Eastern Church, the Orthodox Church, has been much better at keeping hold of this. And to remind us that we are made in the image, sorry, and to remind us that our divinity 
has all that God's divinity has already mingled with our humanity in our creation. When we were created, we were also created in part divine. Now we like to keep things nice and tidy. Human over here, divine over here. And the incarnation says, actually, it got all messy. Human and divine got all mixed up together. We are human and divine as well. So what does that say to us? How do we respond to that? This is how we should respond. It should blow our minds that God came among us, amongst us to remind us who we are so that to remind us that God's divinity is and has been mingling with our humanity since the beginning. That God values us, each one of us, all of humanity, so much that God the eternal word came among us as one of us in all our humanness, all our powerlessness, all our frailty as a sign of how much God values us, esteems us, loves us. That's how important we are to God. So what then is the ascension? Well, the ascension is the kind of other half of that story. In the ascension, this fully divine and fully human Jesus ascends into the Godhead. Now, as I quoted in the pew sheet, I think we often think that in the ascension, Jesus kind of sloughs off all of the humanness, says, whew, thank goodness that's over, I can just go back to being divine, and the divine bit of Jesus slides back to God and everything's returned back to as it should be, and then we can forget about all the messiness. But actually, our theology says that Jesus is fully human and fully divine for eternity. So the fully human Jesus ascends into the Godhead. Our humanity ascends into the Godhead. Our humanity mingles with the divinity of the Trinity. So what does that mean? Well, it's kind of like a welcome mat has been put out for us. And on that welcome mat it says, come and join God's ongoing party. You're invited. Come on in. We're partying here. You can come and join it. Just as you are. We are being drawn into the life of God. Right into the heart of that life. I think sometimes when we think about life in God, we kind of think about heaven and we think, well, I'm here and you're there and God is way over there, wherever God is, in God's castle, whatever, wherever God is. And we're in this big realm and God is in charge, but God is nowhere near us. But actually the ascension says that I'm here and you are here and God is right here with us, in us, all around us. We are in the heart of God because heaven actually isn't a place where God is in control. Heaven is where God is and we are invited right into the heart of that. That's what the ascension does. The human Jesus goes into the heart of God. And we follow the same road. 
right into the heart of God. Right into the heart and life of the Trinity. We are not separate from it, but we are invited into the heart of it. And we join in that life. So these are big concepts. And they should blow our minds. They should make the ground on which we stand feel a little bit uncertain. Too often I think faith is something that kind of we use to shore up life and make things feel safe and certain with nice boundaries around it. But actually Christianity was never about that. It blew people's minds. It changed their worlds. Next week we have Pentecost where... A group of disciples, men and women, were hiding in a room and then went out and started to preach. A group of men and women who were looking for the end of the Roman occupation of Israel and for the restoration of what they thought it was all about suddenly went, oh, actually we get it and it's nothing like this. And their world was rocked and they went out and took this news of this Jesus all around the known world and beyond and beyond. St. Thomas is supposed to get to India and found the Martoma Church. It blew their minds. It changed their world. It changed how they saw things. It changed how they understood their lives. It changed how they saw God. And it changed how they lived their lives from that point on. Because God's invitation was so big. And that's the same invitation for us. To have our world rocked. To have our minds blown. And to see the world in a completely different way. So, let's just spend a moment thinking about that. And then we're going to say the Nicene Creed. Which is the church's way of trying to make all this explainable. And as we say it, it all feels very safe, but actually know that when you say this, you are opening yourself up to a very unsafe way of seeing the world. And that when we do that, then we discover some of the joy and life that God is offering us.